I think that's one thing that I really learned from my profession or my design education is just trying out things because you just never know. There's no formula to life. There's no formula to different situation. There's no formula to resilience. You just have to keep on trying and things work out. Sometimes they don't go as planned and sometimes not going as planned works out even better. This is Women on the Rise, the show about the self-care choices women make to fuel their success in business and life. I'm your host, Laura Dolch. This season, we're widening the lens to talk about resilience, reinvention, and what happens when women refuse to put themselves last. All of which is made possible, of course, when we know ourselves and practice our deeply personal and ever-evolving kind of self-care. Listen in for inspiration and practical tools to help you thrive in a world that often tells women that everyone matters more than them. Hey, everyone. It's Lara here. How are you doing? I am recording this on a Thursday morning after a not-so-great night of sleep. Anyone else having anxiety dreams lately? It's probably a stupid question, right? Thankfully, I generally sleep really well even these days, for which I am incredibly grateful. But on mornings like this, I lean extra heavily on the meditation app that I use most mornings to center myself. It's called Insight Timer. If you haven't checked it out, I highly recommend it. And shout out to teacher Jack Cornfield for this morning's meditation. That man has the most calming voice and is one of my favorite mindfulness teachers. Anyway, all that aside, I loved this week's conversation with Henna Shahid. So I'm going to get right to that. Henna is a strategic designer, design educator, and design entrepreneur. Most recently, she's turned her passion for design thinking and innovation towards social enterprise with Project Pluralist, an organization dedicated to cultivating the next generation of pluralist citizens by nurturing traits and skills that enable youth to thrive in our connected and diverse world. Henna is also a fourth-generation immigrant, having moved from her native Pakistan to the U.S. in her 20s to attend design school. I loved Henna's story of adaptation and resilience. Her design background lends a unique perspective to what it means to adapt our way forward in work and life, especially during challenging times of transition. Before we get to my chat with Henna, though, since I recorded this season's episodes in early May— I recently reached back out to my guests to ask for their favorite resources for learning about and fighting racial injustice. Here's what Hannah shared. As a fourth-generation immigrant and a consequence of not being European, I find myself working on two fronts, eradicating prejudice and discrimination through my work at Project Pluralist and understanding the very narratives that create prejudice and hate in the first place. In my opinion, history has answers to both. It is said that history is written by the victors. In most cases, it has been written by the colonial powers. Everything that we've learned and we know has been whitewashed and has a one-sided view of the so-called Western civilization. In other words, it's Eurocentric view, where the European race and the experience is the protagonist and everyone else is the other, the lesser. I firmly believe that relearning and questioning the stories and narratives told to us is the step forward for an inclusive world. Knowing history as it was, rather than what we were taught, can liberate us all. 
Hannah recommends the New York Times 1619 Project, which you may remember I recommended a couple of weeks ago and have found incredibly helpful on the relearning history front. Hannah also recommends two books that I had not heard of and very excited to look into, The Silk Road by Peter Frankopan and American Like Me by America Ferreira. I'll put links to all those resources in the show notes for this episode at lauradolch.com slash podcast. Enjoy my chat with Henna. But let's start, just given that we're recording this in the middle of a pandemic, which is just, you know, an especially interesting time to be talking about resilience. Tell me, you know, how are you doing? Pretty good. I mean, things are hard, as in it's not the norm. It's not normal. I also don't see, you know, like when it first started, you're like, things will just go back to normal. Things are not going to go back to normal. The way we work, the way we live, everything is going to change. And I'm just mentally sort of preparing myself for how things are going to change and how it just impacts every, you know, everything, every aspect of life. But it's, it's just been a lot of adaptation. You just sort of like have to go with what's happening. And so for me, luckily, I had my own work timings and I had my deadlines that were in somewhat in my control. And just having that a little bit of control has just been really helpful because I have a toddler and who's not going to daycare. And it would have been really, really hard if both of us had these external pressures of work. I don't know what I would have done, but I think I'm coping really well because my work is in my control. And that has helped me a lot. Yeah, it makes me think about, you know, when you're talking about the things that are in your control, right? And because you have a design background, I think it's interesting to think about applying those design principles to building our life. And I wonder, and what comes up for me around like, controlling the things that you can can control is kind of what got me to this place. I'm thinking like that to me sounds like design and making mindful choices. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that has showed up for you in your life? So um, I think one of the things, I don't know if design was a di- like mindfulness was a direct link for me for design in, in terms of that. For me, designing my life or it was more of adjusting to change. It was also things of like you adapt, like you're always working around. It's never like you have this expertise and you're like, I'm just going to go ahead and do this. No, you have, you have a lot of generally stakeholders, you know, when you're professionally working and you sort of have to morph things around and bring things around. And like, there's a lot of adaptability that comes with it. You know, you communicate something, you go back, you like redo things and you experiment and you come back. There's a, there's a sense of experimentation. And I think that has been the key for me in not just this COVID situation, but just in general of these little experiments. If things are not working, okay, so what can I change? Like what little impact can I make? And let me just see what happens. And that experimentation is either it's professional life. It's like, you know, beyond career. It's my, it's my home life. It's like me as a mother. It's me as a partner. It's just like, what are the things that I could tweak? What are the things that I could impact? And then how do I see like what changes, what happened with that little change? Like how has that, tell, can you give me sort of an example of how that's showed up for you specifically? 
so one of the key things, you know, so I'll give example of like me being a professional and also mother during this whole situation. So one of the things this just happened very recently was this whole thing of, you know, when the start of the COVID and everybody's home, I had this notion that I could just continue to work the way I was working before. And if my son is home, he's just going to be around me and will play and do his own thing. And I'm thinking of like this two and a half year old can just adapt the way I am adapting. But apparently it doesn't work like that. And the first few days were extremely frustrating. I think it took two weeks for me to understand that I cannot continue as if like everything is just normal. And so I have to change something. So we started having a routine where like there was a lot of FaceTime with him and just saying, okay, I'm just going to shut this computer down and I'm just going to be with you. And we're going to do things that are fun for both of us, but that's not work. And when it's nap time, I get that two, three hour. And that's what I have to like figure out how to do work. And then I have to do afterwards. And so that a little bit of adaptability changed. Like we, I was so frustrated that I felt like, our relationship is very rocky. And I'm like, what is going on? You know? And it's just a lot of things changed just based on that little experimentation of, I'm just not going to think about this. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to try to insert work. This is my time with you. I don't know when I'm going to get this time again. You know, things, you know, at some point things will open, whatever that might look like, but it's not going to be the same. So let me just enjoy it. So I feel like that put me back into like, let's be in the moment. And I, I think that's where the mindfulness comes in and just deal with it as it comes. And then, you know, I'll just adapt and then the work thing will have to like be done at different hours and all of that. So that whole thing changed. And I feel like, you know, I'm more productive. I know my hours and it's morning, it's in the afternoon and it's like early evening. And so I'm in the background, I'm always thinking about things, but I never have a computer in my hand. I don't have a phone in my hand. I'm not on it and I'm not irritating that little kid anymore. And like, we have a really good relationship and I do enjoy my days, you know, and I feel like I'm just more productive because I've been able to divide my work day instead of like a big chunk of hours. It's like a few hours here and there. And so it just makes me look back and refine my work and rethink what I thought four hours ago. It, it just worked for me, which I never thought would have. Yeah, no, I can totally relate to that. I'm hearing two things. One is it sounds like you, you let go of those expectations a little bit, you know, like of the expectations of how it used to be and which can sometimes just open us up to other possibilities. But the other thing, yeah, is that you, I love this idea of breaking up the workday because I think that that's something, that's something that I discovered too when I started running my own business because, you know, in a more corporate environment, it's harder to do that, although it can be done there too, depending on how you organize your schedule. But isn't it amazing, like what happens when you give your brain a chance to like put pieces together? Absolutely. It's like, so we were taught this thing in design school where you're doing your work and you feel like this is the best thing that you could come up with. This is the most innovative thing that you've like done. This is so creative. And it was like, you just need to pause on that. Get up, move around, go do something, take a break, come back and see the same work. You will find a way to refine it for sure. And I feel like, you know, that's like, oh, this is my work thing. And you don't really, like, I sometimes don't apply that in life. 
but like, this was a chance where it just happened. And I'm like, wow, like that was a thing that I should have applied all along on everything, you know? But I think like the way our work has been, it's like a very, very, it's still, we live in a post-industrial world. Our education system, as in like the way our timings work, the way our work works, is really based on how factories worked. And so that whole component of doing your shifts and doing this eight hour workday, and then, you know, you have to like, you can only get 30 minutes break and then you have to punch your card in and out. And that's how your productivity is measured. Like that day is gone. We don't do that kind of work anymore. You know, most of the work that we do, whether it's comes under creative or any other non-creative, it doesn't matter. It's just very different. So this whole shift kind of work and like the solid eight hour or sitting in front of your computer, like that's not going to get anybody anywhere. And I think that's what's happening with this, where, you know, we're having this biggest experiment, you know, of remote work in the world right now. It's happening globally where everybody's understanding that that's, you know, like you can't just say that is my personal life and this eight hours plus two hours of traveling is my work. And then you're just going to stuff everything in that. Like that's not going to be creative for anybody. You don't, you can't think loosely. You can't, you can't go beyond like what is now. And so I think it's going to change now in the future with this experiment working. And when you have to really balance the life because you can't divide your time, like your 24 hour into this is personal and this is not. Everything is personal. Everything like is yours, right? So we're all human. We're not robots like for eight hours and then we become human all of a sudden. So I think this whole idea of balancing and, and how we work is just going to change where like going for a walk for 45 minutes in the middle of your workday to think, you know, clearly it's totally fine. That's part of your productivity. Yeah, I feel like that's right. And I completely agree. And I have often said like, that is part of your work. That walk in the middle of the day is part of your work. Like if you have to think of it that way in order to make yourself feel less guilty about doing it, then that's fine. But that ultimately is part of your work because to your point, it's it's clearing your head. It's allowing you to look at things differently and to, you know, potentially level them up. And, you know, that's what we all ultimately are trying to do is be better. Yeah, I, I could not agree more. I, I'm curious about like, given what you just said and sort of thinking about adaptability and how we all adapt to this new world that we're living, how you've adapted to, you know, being at home with your toddler more and how that's affected your work. And and also when we talked, you know, before talking about how you adapted when you immigrated to the U.S., like I would love to hear more about that story and how adaptation came into that specifically and 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 also as you're adapting where is that line between like when do you push it too far that you're not yourself so I know that's kind of a big question but I'll leave it there and see where you want to go with it so I see that as two different things so one is like the adaptability of coming to a new culture a new country and the second part is like you know how much do you adapt and how much do you remain and so the first part, I guess there's all, there's two parts to that as well. So there's one professional, you know, so when I came, I studied interior design. Um, that was my background. And this was during recession. And even though like I came and did all of that 
to get that particular role as a you know interior design manager, I realized that was just not going to happen. I, we it was 2010 when I graduated, and the whole industry had just you know collapsed. The architecture, interior, real estate, nothing was moving. And you know, I did a little bit of work for a year, and I realized that. I just need to broaden things. Like I still want to do design, but I want to do design on a very high level where I can just do pivot and move from industry and different specializations and don't have to get stuck. And that realization didn't just come like, oh, this is happening recession. I think just overall, there was this urge of like, I wanted like go broader and broader and broader. And, you know, over time, like, you know, I went back to school came um, after school, adapted to a very different field. Um, I went into new product development and innovation um, in UX. And again, like I could just take that total skill and go to do different kind of things. And so I'm not held back anymore, but I feel like that was the one, that was a career adaption. Again, it happened because of the circumstances and the recession was a big driver for that. It just made you you know, it pushed you in that direction. But it was as this also the survival instinct of like, if you want to stay and if you want to, you know, like do what you wanted to do, you have to adapt. Otherwise you just have to go back. And I don't know if you're ever going to come back. And so that was like a big driver where it's, it's either do or die kind of a situation. So you have to be, you have to build plans and you have to like say option A, option B, option C and figure things out. On the other hand, on a personal level, there is this adaptability where I grew up with a lot of American culture. So it wasn't that I was coming into something very new, but I felt like I was new to a lot of people. Can you actually share with my listeners where you grew up? Because I don't think we touched on that. Oh, yeah. So I, I grew up in Karachi, Pakistan, and I was in my late 20s when I came to do my master's, um, I'd been working for a few years and I just wanted to get a master's. And I thought, you know, I knew about the school where I, I went to Savannah College of Art and Design in Savannah. And I, I knew somebody who went there and I really liked the program. And I like, you know, what I had heard about that it was a small city and things would be slow. And I came from this really large sprawling um, city it was overcrowded and like, you know, concrete jungle. And I just thought it would be such a romantic thing to go to this, you know, like this slow town. And actually it was exactly what I had pictured. So I really it was. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It was Savannah, Georgia is like, it's, it's, it's a, it's a college town in some way. And it's very artistic because of the school, which is really embedded in the culture. And so there's a lot of international population, both staff, teachers, and students. And so you just don't feel lonely and you don't feel like you're an alien. You sort of blend in and because it's very creative, like there's a certain energy around it. So it was a really great experience, but it's slow. Like I went from like a really fast pace where you don't know your neighbors to like you say hello and look somebody in the eye on the street. And that was really weird. It weirded me out initially because I was like, you don't talk to strangers. <laughs> and everybody, so funny. 
and and the locals were like, you would fit right in New York. And I'm like, why in New York? <laughs> Actually, I have to quickly jump in and just say, it's so funny to hear you say that because I grew up in the South. So I grew up in the Southern part of Virginia, in Richmond, Virginia, which is culturally very Southern, not as Southern as, as Savannah for sure, but like, a, you know, and so I can totally relate to that. Yes, you say hello to your neighbors, you look at them in the eye. And then I lived in New York City and I actually had... And, and then, of course, now I live in Seattle where people really do not have that kind of like, you know, it's not as friendly here. It's just not. I actually personally found New York City to be friendlier than Seattle in a lot of ways. <laughs> Is that I'm curious. I don't know. I just okay, think- so it's it's interesting because um, I didn't live in New York. I used to live in uh, New Jersey, but I, I worked for five years. Uh, so I used to commute to Manhattan. So I used to live in Princeton and then at one point I lived in Weehawken. Weehawken is like right across the tunnel from, from New York. So you see the whole skyline and you just like one stop and then you're in New York in Midtown. So I feel that people are friendly. <laughs> it's a very different kind of friendly. And if people find that other people, like New Yorkers are rude, it's because everybody's just in a hurry to get places, yes, right? Getting totally. places is like really tough. And I remember like getting into Midtown and there are all these tourists and I'd be like, oh my God, just get out of my way. Like I'm, yes. get, I need to go to work. I need to go back home. Like, why are you taking selfies in the middle of the street? So I think like, I totally get that. Why people feel that New York is a route. It's just like getting to places is like really tough there. But Seattle is very different. <laughs> I yes, don't know. It is. Yeah, I don't know how and like just to, to like, it's a different kind of friendliness, but it's not the same thing. Yeah, I'm sorry. I totally derailed you. you were, okay, <laughs> so you were in Savannah, but I just had to, I had to jump in because it was it, so familiar to me as a Southerner who lived in New York City for 13 years and now lives in New York. Like I could see all sides of it. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, I get that. So, but yeah, so you're in Savannah and you were saying it was, it was sort of culturally, there was enough of a, a melting pot, so to speak, that you didn't yeah. feel other so much, but yeah, it was slower. Yeah, it was slower. But then there were other things where I didn't feel like I was the other, but I felt like, you know, like the locals probably did. Um, so it was a thing where the, in this adaptability, there are things that happen. So for Americans who've never lived anywhere else, this English that is spoken here is the only English. But I grew up with British English from spellings to even a little bit of grammar, the way certain phrases are framed, examples they're different. And I don't think I realized before I got here that what a difference it makes. And so it was interesting because there was this adaptability of like, I'm speaking the same language. Why don't you understand some of the words that I'm saying? It was just that, you know, most Americans were not used to those phrases or those words. They're not as commonly used. And so that was just very interesting for me. But there was this, always this thing of I had to, I felt like one thing that I always had to assert and I felt like that was another key to adapting was not just for me to adapt for other person to make the other person understand where I stand and like, what are my capabilities? I would go to these lectures and I would want to talk to like the famous architect or the famous industrial designer. And I just want to like say like, how oh, can I get an internship? So you just want to like, go after a lecture as a student and just like, you know, give your spiel and like get a card and stuff like that. And I noticed people would just read my lips and that used to infuriate me so much 
where I was like, I'm speaking this language. I have spoken it all my life. My entire schooling is in English, but you're reading my lips and that used to really annoy me. And because I still had a little bit of accent. And so I didn't speak like, you know, I didn't speak American. Let's just say that. Forget Southern. <laughs> it was just not American. And yeah, I and think Southern's a whole other situation. It's a whole other situation. Yeah. And so slightly, I felt like, so, and I went, ended up like doing some work for the school and, you know, like the work study jobs. And I started to really adapt. Like I could have a Southern slur. Like if you didn't know me and if I was a phone on phone talking to you, you probably would have imagined that I probably was from somewhere from South and the adaptability went to that degree. And I remember like some of my relatives were like, what happened to you? They were all in on the West coast. They were like, what happened to you? And I feel like it's just a thing where when you go somewhere new, you sort of like really adapt because you don't want to be held back because of the differences. Either it's your accent, either it's like your user words, either, you know, how you dress, how you come across. There are a lot of differences, like how mannerism, how direct or indirect you are. Like there are a lot of those little cultural nuances, you know, and it's the thing where you sort of like try to really integrate as much as possible where you, you never want there to be a wall because my whole fear at that time was like, I never want to go for a job and for them to ask me really weird questions, which used to happen a lot where they would just like have really weird, you know, conversations. Like what? So like, they'd be like, so how do you culturally adjust here? And I would be like, what does that even mean? What does that mean? What, yeah, what, I don't what, even know what that means. What do you mean culturally adjust here? Like here we're in Savannah, Georgia, in United States. Like, like I don't understand. And What so, do you think they were trying to get at? Like, what do you think they wanted to know? I, I don't know, like what that could mean. Like if I'm going for a job interview or for an internship interview. Like, I don't know why that was a thing to us. Like you, the culture is the work culture, right? It's culture of its own. And yeah, every time you go to a new work, you sort of adapt to like whatever is going on there. So I just still never understood. I was like, is, are they trying to say like, you come from a Muslim culture, you come from a Pakistani culture, like I never understood what that meaning was, but it just made me very uncomfortable. But also like, I don't even know where to like how to answer that because yeah. I don't understand your question. And it was not just Savannah. It happened in New York as well. But there was this thing of you don't want those barriers to be because the competition is already tough, right? In the middle of recession, the first time I graduated, middle of recession, you're like, you really want to make it because you don't get another chance. You have a few months to get the job. Otherwise, you have to leave. So the stakes are really high and you want to make sure that there are no barriers. And so if the barrier is like, I don't have an accent like you, I will make sure that I mimic one. And so with that, I went to that side where I really, you know, adapted. And a lot of people still meet me and they, they don't realize, they think I was born here or at least brought up here. And I, I've only been here for about 11, 12 years, but it's, I think it's just some things that happen psychologically. But then there are other things where you sort of like start to think about it and say, how much do I need to change? Like I am who I am. And there are certain things that will remain 
that are part of me and I'm going to do things differently. I'm going to think differently because I've seen a very different world as well. And so I don't think that ever changes where you start to say, hmm, how much am I going to be American? Because again, what is America? Like, it's just different. Every city is different. Forget state. East Coast is so different from West Coast. And so because I've lived in so many cities around the U.S., I, you know, that's not even a question that I sometimes like think about because I know that there are so many Americas within America. And it's more like wherever you are living, you sort of like adapt to that, you know, in certain ways. The biggest question comes when you're an immigrant, when you have a child, and then there's always this thing of, and this is every parent, right? They want their children to grow up sort of like how they did, you know, like knowingly or like you probably are not aware of it, but that happens for every parent. But when you're an immigrant, there's this thing of my child is going to have such a different experience. They would never know what I experienced, right? So there's this like thing of what if we never have built that understanding and when they grow up, we're just going to be so different people. And I think that is a, probably every immigrant goes through every immigrant parent. And so for me, I'm from Pakistan. My husband is from India. So we're not even from the same country. So for us, it's more like, do we want to burden? So for my thing is, do I want to burden my child with like all of those sort of things? Or I just want him to grow the way he wants to grow. And from time to time, I just want him to understand that this is not the only way to do things. English is not the only language that is spoken around the world. There are many ways people live and many ways people think and many ways people speak. And it's more of like understanding the, he needs to have this understanding that the world is not just what you see here. It's very, very different. I'm curious though where the line is, right? So like you're talking about all these things that, that you've done personally in terms of adapting to the various places you've been, talking about helping your child sort of understand the different cultures while also being part of the one that he's living in. And like, where, where's the line? Like, how do you know? Do you know when you have done something that is not true to yourself? How, how do you know? I think, yeah, it's really tough. I don't know if like, you know, instantly it's always in hindsight. It's always in hindsight to say, and it's also, it depends on how much power you have when you are struggling and you're just trying to say like, I just want to, you know, like figure this out. I I, want to stay. I have my, you know, like I need to get my visa situation, right. I need to get this job thing. I need to like figure all these things out. You're not thinking about things like, oh, you know, how much true am I to myself? Or like, how much do I need to really adapt? And how much do I need to remain the person that I I was or like my behaviors? It's just mostly in hindsight, when you're comfortable enough. And I think because of like the time that I've spent and, you know, how fortunate I've been, I am comfortable enough to just speculate and look back and think about that, no one should be going through this or maybe we shouldn't think about these things. And it's not just like, oh, you know, like white Americans don't understand. Nobody understands when you live in in your country, in your own culture where people, you know, like are similar to you with similar thinking. You just never think about these things until you go out. And I don't think I would have thought about 
diversity or pluralism, the way I think about it, if I hadn't had the experience of coming out of a culture of majority and being a minority and seeing a, a really broader world and meeting people from all around the world, I don't think I would have understood um, this whole concept. So a, a lot of like the experiences that I've had and things that I've gone through, I think it's not that when I was going through, I knew what I was doing. It's that it, you learn in the, always in hindsight, like you go through an experience and then you take away something from it. And sometimes you connect different experiences together and some sort of a picture gets painted. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and it's just, you know, as you're talking about how important it is to see and to see other cultures, to meet other people, to see other ways of living, because otherwise you just, you don't know. I, I It's why travel is so it's so important to me and I think it should be for everyone. And it's such a strange time to be saying that because obviously we can't travel right now, which just feels tragic in so many ways, not the least of which is what you're saying, which is that it 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 keeps people in their bubbles, which, you know, again, like safety, like we got to stay in our bubbles right now. I get it. But <laughs> we're losing a lot by not being able to explore each other's, you know, worlds, yeah. essentially. And, and travel is a really good example of just seeing the world, like really the most immersive experience you could ever have of, you know, different points of view and different people. But there is, there's other things too, right? So for me, I was so immersed in American culture was, or even British culture beyond the history was because of, you know, television shows, was books were a big part of like growing up because there are a lot of like mental models and memes and understanding of the things that that's just not very, it's, it's not about just knowing the language. It's knowing some of those nuances. And so, because I grew up with a lot of those, you know, I, I, I love reading and reading just meant like I could understand the world in so many different ways. Like and go to places without really physically being there. And so that experience of like knowing cultures and understanding things was really important. That just gives you a cue of like why people think a certain way, why people do things in a certain way. You get that idea. So, and now that we are digitally connected, of course it comes with its issues, but I think just knowing different things is just easier. Knowing like how different countries are or how culturally people do things differently it's definitely the world is more open that way to compared to like when I was a teenager it wasn't like that we of course didn't grow up but there was no Facebook Twitter or Instagram and you know like stuff like that where visually you can see so much unfortunately it also comes with a lot of biases and other issues that we have to deal with these newer technologies and newer modes of connection but there, there's so many different ways to just understand and learn the world. And I feel like books are probably still going to be the best way to make sense of the world and also understand different people. What were some of your favorite English language books when you were a kid? So as a teenager, I was a, what was her name? Uh, Nancy Drew. <laughs> oh, yes. I, I love Nancy Drew too. Oh my gosh. I devoured those books. I grew up with Nancy Drew. That was like, I don't know how much, how, how much I had. I, I had a huge collection of like those series. 
I used to go and we used to have this called Tuesday Bazaars on Tuesdays. They'd be like large tents in a big park and then people would just go and buy different things. And there were always these booksellers that would use to sell secondhand books. And so you could just buy these books for very, very cheap compared to if I were to go and then get them brand new. And that was it. My All my pocket money used to just go and buy these books because they were just great. And then there was this Canadian author. There's a show that's running right now, Anne of Green Gables. Yes, I Anne knew you were going to say that. I, I loved those books too. Oh my, oh my God. No so, wonder we connected. <laughs> so I, I recently found the entire series off of Amazon and just bought it. And last year I read the whole series. I hadn't read the entire series. And I've watched every series that they've made. Like there was one, there was an American version of it, like in the 90s, I think that was made. And now this new one is on Netflix. Yeah, it's really good. And it's very, the new one is really a modern take. And then there were so many British authors that I, I grew up with. So like, I had a, a broader understanding already, although someone would say very Western understanding of the world or Western as in like, mostly United States and England. But I feel like that was still broad enough, you know, than than nothing. So that sort of changed. And that's why when I came here, I didn't feel, you know, as if I was like going into like, I don't know what kind of a thing. It just felt very familiar to me. Yeah. What have you learned about resilience in all of this? Like, what do you you know about resilience now? So one of the interesting things about resilience is, you know, I've gone through this of like, oh my God, like, I don't know, a few months I have to get a job. Oh, this is going to happen or that's going to happen. Or like, this whole thing of like, I don't know if people are understanding me and then just going through this phase again and again and visas and like, you know, all the things that you have to do with as an immigrant and, you know, as coming from outside. And you would think that once you've done something, you would be able to do it again and again with the same courage, with the same zest for life. But the resilience doesn't work that way. Every scenario and every time when you have to deal with the situation, it's like you have to muster this whole new courage. You have to build a, build a different kind of resilience. You always have to tell yourself, okay, we have to get through this. And it's never the same. Like resilience is not a formula where once you've done it one time, you could just literally take it and apply it to every scenario. It doesn't work that way. But it's just once you know that you have to get through this thing, and somehow you'll just figure things out. This idea of like somehow you are going to figure this out is literally the core of resilience. Just if somebody has, I believe, in this mantra, you can go through different situations. It's not that when I first went through all of these like visa things and like figuring out new jobs or like, am I going back to school and I need this scholarship? I can't deal with this. I had less to lose and I felt like I was just more of like, very upbeat. It was upbeat resilience. As <laughs> I've grown older and I feel like I have a lot to lose, I have a whole family. My resilience is not as upbeat. It's more of, it's very gritty. It's a, it has a different feel to it. It's more like we have to do this. Otherwise like things will just fall apart or we have to do this because you know, everything depends on this. So it's, it's, it's a different flavor of resilience. But the core is like, we're going to figure things out somehow. Yeah, it sounds like just that faith in yourself that you can 
figure it out, no matter what it is. Yeah, it's just having some sort of a resourcefulness to be able to say, I'm going to try this, I'm going to try that, I'm going to try this. I think that's one thing that I really learned from my profession or my design education is just trying out things because you just never know. There's no formula to life. There's no formula to different situations. There's no formula to resilience. You just have to keep on trying and things work out. Sometimes they don't go as planned and sometimes not going as planned works out even better. I love it. I love it. This is so great. So we have a few minutes left. Is there anything else that you want to add? I think what I would add and this that I mentioned this this thing about the conclusion that I came to around the world's diversity, the human diversity, or even this idea of pluralism that, you know, we're all equal, but in different ways. And there's no, there's no one superior culture or nation or kinds of people than the other. They're all, we're all different and we're all unique in our own way. But this thing of yesterday, we're living in this COVID environment where we are, there is fear but we also have to remain in our little bubbles. We have to stay apart. But that doesn't really translate into, because the kind of problems that we are facing beyond COVID that we are going to face tomorrow and what we have faced you know, yesterday, they're just going to be transnational. They don't have any boundaries. They, they're not stuck on ethnicities or any group of people. Those problems are going to be worldwide and to solve some of those issues, we always need worldwide solutions. And if we don't have understanding of different people and understanding that different people have different ways of doing things and there's no right or wrong always around it, we won't be able to build that cooperation. Either it's on state level, city level, you know, like neighborhood, you know, and, and then on global level, it gets even more complicated. Yeah, I mean, it really is a lesson in that right now. We're it, it's a it's an absolute forced lesson that we have to understand our differences and also where we come together in order to find these solutions. And and like we don't have a choice right now. <laughs> it's yeah. like the universe is like, okay, you're not learning fast enough, so here you go. Yeah, yeah, and it's we're in a situation where let's say if we were really like you know, guarding information and we're really like saying, okay, these are our boundaries and we don't want information getting from this boundary to that boundary. Could you believe what could have happened? Like it would have been, we are calling this catastrophe. It would have been a, a bigger, a million times bigger catastrophe. And the fact that we're able to share information, the fact that we're able to look at the medical expertise on a global level to understand this thing, if it wasn't a global effort, we wouldn't know what was going on till now. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, I do want to have one other question for you. When you think about self-care, what comes up for you? And, and especially as it relates to staying resilient. I actually have been thinking about this a lot. <laughs> I've been thinking about this a lot because it's... So when we usually talk about self-care, we talk about, you know, like going for walks or like, you know, having a glass of wine towards the end of the day or like, you know, a little bit of bath time and stuff like that, which is, again, all of those things are important. But there is this, this self-care, which is really very internal. And that's to, for, for me, my biggest, 
you know, way of self-caring is this applying this whole thing of like trying out because my biggest fear, and that is the most stressful thing for me in my life is feeling, you know, I hate to, to always like go through something and, and say like, Oh, it failed. And I have to remind myself that it was an experiment and not a failure. And so the biggest thing for me for self-care is just not to judge myself on like what I consider wins and what I consider a feel, you know, either it's personal or it's, it's career. And I think that is my self-care, no judgments. I love that. I love that. So simple and yet not easy at all, right? It's taken me a while to figure out because I feel like I'm, I'm just generally very critical. I, I like things in certain order, in certain way, and I'm most critical about myself. And that also stresses me out. And, you know, recently I realized that I just, if I really, like for me, this, the whole core of self-care is no judgments, just, just let it go. Some things happen, some things work out, some things don't work out. And that has, that has helped me. Otherwise, like these, these few months would have really been terrible. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Where can people learn more about you? So um, there's Project Pluralist website. They can go there and learn about, you know, what I've, I've been doing, learn about Project Pluralist in general. You know, it's very much based in Seattle and uh, um, neighboring counties. Um, yeah. And if anybody wants to get in touch, um, they can send me an email for there. That's great. I'll put all those links in the, in the show notes. Thank you so much, Hannah. This was such an amazing conversation. I had so much fun. Thank you. Women on the Rise is produced by me, Lara Dolch, with editing help from the team at Lens Group Media. For show notes and resources mentioned in this episode, visit laradolch.com slash podcast. If you'd like to support the work we do on the podcast, leave a rating or review wherever you listen, subscribe to the show, and share episodes on social media or with your friends. It's all a huge help to the show, and I truly appreciate it. 